Welcome to the Guidelines Podcast. The following is a discussion with Darren Hood about developing UX acumen. Enjoy. Today, our guest is Darren Hood. Darren, welcome to the show. Yes. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. I've been enjoying your podcast, The World of UX, for a couple of weeks now. And uh, before that, a talk that you did with UX Joburg. Uh, and we're going to get into that at the end of the show. But before we do that, there will be people listening to this podcast who may not have heard about you, Darren. Could you please tell us who you are and how you relate to the UX discipline? Okay, so everybody, of course, my name is Darren Hood. And my presence in UX space, uh, it, it, exp it spans across about 25 years. I designed my first website in 1995 and unbeknownst to me, did not realize that I was already doing what we now know to be UX at the time. I was conducting user interviews. I was conducting usability testing. I was trying to make sure I had the right information architecture in place. So, so I was dabbling as a freelance web designer doing things like that and then made my transition into full-time UX work in 2005, taking on a position at a, at a bank, a major bank in, in the United States. Only had at the time uh, a bachelor's degree in information technology, but wanted to learn more. And I know we're going to be talking about things on this line with the journey. I ended up getting a master's degree in, in information management from Syracuse University, specializing in user needs. Felt that I still needed to learn more. And for those of you that don't know me, I love education. So I went and got a second master's degree in user experience design at Kent State University, where I now also serve as an adjunct teaching in the user experience mas uh, design master's program for, for Kent State. I'm also an adjunct at Lawrence Technological University in Southfield, Michigan, and am going to be helping, matter of fact, I am help, going to be helping, well, yeah, I'm helping uh, design courses for the new master's in CX program at Michigan State University, where I am going to be serving as an adjunct once that program gets up and running as well. So roughly 25 years or so of experience, I sort of kind of don't count, I just say 20 plus, and I uh, work full-time for a company called United Wholesale Mor Mortgage, the number one wholesale mortgage provider in the United States. Uh, my footprint spans companies like, I mean, you name it, Ford, General Motors, IBM, Quicken Loans. It, it's my, my, my footprint spans quite a few organizations, mostly large, a few small here and there, but I, I pretty much have, uh, I've run the gamut of the different types of things that you can do for the most part in UX and I absolutely love the discipline. I love helping people grow. I can see that you're also currently pursuing a PhD in educational leadership from North yes. Central University. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, uh, it's funny. My, my transition into UX was, it was partially due to the fact that I was a freelance web designer, but before I worked in UX full time, I was actually an instructional designer. I was a trainer. I was well-versed in the science of, of education. How do you actually construct a learning experience, which I now know to be LX, part of the experience landscape. Um, I was doing all those things. And I eventually, as I got into UX, I always ended up helping people learn. I always ended up training people. I always ended up mentoring people. 
And so I've, even though that was really my first love was education, I never got away from it, even when I was doing UX. And so one of my goals was to eventually, I wanted to be able to marry my love for user experience and my passion for education and everything has come full circle and, and becoming an adjunct has helped me to do that. And I know that by getting a PhD, it will allow me to, to take on a full role in academia down the road. I'm about riding off to the sunset eventually by going into academia. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to marry, to merge those two passions. And so that's what that's all about. And I'm roughly about uh, six, seven classes from, from completing my, my PhD. That's really exciting. I think it's um, also wonderful that you're giving back. So I think really giving yourself yes. a solid foundation from which you can influence the next generation of UX designers. So yes. thank you for doing that. And also thank you for being on the podcast today. You, this is a blessing. Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> now you've Absolutely. been in the industry for over 20 years uh, and you've, yep. you will have seen UX change as a discipline. What have been some of the biggest yes. shifts that you've seen over that time? It's funny. Shifts occur for different reasons. And I think we're, sometimes we're more aware than we realize we are. There was, the first shift that I noticed was that in the late 90s, around the early 2000s or so, everything was about interaction design and information architecture. There was the acronym of X, though Don Norman was called a user experience architect when he worked for Apple in roughly the mid 90s. Um, that wasn't a, an acronym that was being used broadly. And people certainly didn't have UX in their titles. Everybody was either an information architect or an interaction designer. Every once in a while, you might find a visual designer that was called upon to do uh, some type of what we now know is UX related, but of course they didn't call them UX visual designers because nobody was using that that title. So one of the big changes I noticed was roughly around, I want to say 2008, 2009, the acronym of UX started gaining, actually started gaining traction before that, but you start to see it from a career standpoint where you start to see UX in people's titles, a full 12, 13 years after Donald Norman experienced it, it started to become a mainstay. I personally pushed for it in, in uh, places where I worked. I worked at a, an agency in Detroit known as Team Detroit. It's now known as Global Team Blue. We were all referred to as information architects, but we worked in a strategy department and we were always working on deliverables. We were always conducting research. We were analyzing and synthesizing data, we were doing a whole heck of a lot more than just working on information architecture. So I went to my boss and we went to HR and we, we presented the proposal to shift that we need a title that's more descriptive of what we do. So that was one of the major shifts. Right before that, the form factor of the smartphone came into play. So designing for smartphones, was another major shift. And, and that's one of the more constant shifts that takes place and why it's important for people to embrace the true methods and methodologies associated with UX. Because if you do, anytime there's a shift in technology or a new form factor comes into play, it's easy to transition 
those principles, those methods, those methodologies from one form factor, from one technology, or one type of experience to another. So when the iPhone came out, we were tasked to design apps. Nobody was designing uh, mobile web experiences at the time. That came along a few years later. But we were trying to make sure to, to uh, optimize design for, for mobile apps so that people could, you know, you, you could drive your brand experience, you could, you could get conversions, you could, whatever, whatever those business goals were, we could drive that. And so I remember working on a, uh, an app for Bosch that was an award-winning application back in the day. And, and later on worked on some tablet-based experiences for Cadillac. So these types of things, these were the shifts that were taking place from a, what do you call us? What do we do? Who are we? And then on the other side, there were the form factors that were coming into play because the tablet came along a few years after the mobile phone. And then we had interactive TV. I was designing for interactive TV. And then eventually later when I'm working for Bosch, I was doing ergonomic work. I was working on on handheld hardware or work carts or all types of things, a diagnostic equipment that, that we're not in the browser anymore. We're not on the phone anymore. But because I had a strong handle, a solid handle on methods and methodologies of UX, I could always shift and apply them. If someone is just working on deliverables or they're just trying to make things pretty, uh, number one, that's not UX. And then number two, you won't be able to make that transition. So those are the main shifts that I've seen over my career. Okay. So the form factor changed, but the technique yes. didn't. And you kept it on didn't. working on different things. Yes. You were still using the same systems and techniques year after year. So something that I really want to get into is from the fundamental skills that are required to be a UX designer. And I've written down three things. I'd like to discuss each of them. Sure. And these are based on problems that I've been facing and problems I've seen other people are facing. Okay. Okay. So firstly is, and I, if I had to give this a broad topic, I would call this UX acumen development. Okay. <laughs> so firstly, I'd say it's learning to ask better questions, foreseeing future negative events, and then dealing with information overload whilst working on a project. So let's dig into the first one, asking better questions. I just want to position it. And I'm going to position it with a quote from Mort by Terry Pratchett. Okay. Albert grunted. Do you know what happens to lads who ask too many questions? Mort thought for a moment. <laughs> no, he said eventually. What? There was a silence. Then Albert straightened up and said, damned if I know, probably they'll get answers and serve them right. <laughs> I've recently found myself in meetings with clients in which I realized that I, as a junior designer, was the bottleneck. I didn't know the right questions to ask during these introductory meetings. It's far easier to talk about and complain about nightmare clients, but it's not so easy to talk about areas where you need to grow. How did you learn to ask better questions when meeting with stakeholders? That is a phenomenal question. And I actually, I don't know if you've seen my presentation on emotional intelligence, but most people who talk about emotional intelligence usually cap out at five different qualities. Mm -hmm. I expand well beyond that. And having an inquisitive nature, a naturally inquisitive nature is part of having good emotional intelligence. 
Because if you really, if you have, if you're ethical, if you're sincere, if you're passionate and something comes up that you feel you need to know in order to help fulfill your responsibility in a given work situation, when that happens, um, you're simply going to ask the right questions. I, I think that it's a natural thing to a great extent that if you're naturally curious, which I spark, I actually mark that as being one of the critical characteristics that a successful UX person needs to have. Natural, naturally curious. I wonder how that works. I wonder what would happen if we would do X. I hear what you're saying, but have you considered these other four or five scenarios? But the thing is, you can't go into a room. I, I think about the old Superman going to a phone booth and come out and up, up and away. You can't go into a phone booth and turn into that person, so to speak. So when you're going through the, the exercises of self-awareness, check and see how, how inquisitive are you really? Because when it comes naturally, you'll just do it. If it doesn't come naturally, there are ways to look at who you are and, and then try to, to develop a stronger level of, of, of inquisition, if you will. Somebody who's more than likely to ask a question. And this is so critically important. And one of the reasons I love the question and love the fact that you include that as one of those three, one of those three elements is that people, they want to get into UX for God knows what reason. But here's the thing. We are not order takers. A person doesn't come into the rooms. Hey, uh, we need to make these buttons work better. Uh, we're not, we don't like what we have here. So we need you to come up with something else. Can you have that done in two days? Okay, thanks. See ya. Just change the buttons and, you know, make this one blue and make this one orange. We don't just do what they say. So asking questions is that, that's that jumping off point. I hear what you're saying. I hear your requirements, but I have six or seven questions for you. In order to drive an optimal user experience, asking questions is in the foundation of that adventure. We have to ask questions. We can't just hear what somebody wants, say okay, and then just go do it. What if they're wrong? What if what they're, what they're trying to, to, to execute, what if there's no demand for it? What if you, somebody asks you something and then you perform a SWOT analysis and you make some, some determinations, you make some discoveries, and then you go back to the client, to your stakeholder, to talk about what you, what you have, have discovered and then take those unanswered questions. Because if you go through an exercise like that, you're going to have unanswered questions. Well, guess who has the answers? For the most part, probably the stakeholder, the client. So it's, it's a natural occurrence, but if you don't have it, face the fact. If you're not an inquisitive person, you don't, you don't seem to care about what, what makes something tick or what would happen if you did X, which by the way is key to being an innovator, then you have to learn how to ask the question. So now if you have, if you're not inquisitive, but you're disciplined, you can use your discipline to help make yourself cultivate, uh, build a more inquisitive person. And, and because it has to be natural. If it's not natural, it won't work. Do you think that there are any tools that one can use to, to jog the memory when it comes to asking better questions? 
So something that's coming to mind right now is a tool called five questions. So basically, mm-hmm. whenever you, um, um, whenever someone tells you something, you ask why, and then you ask why again, and then you ask why again. And the, the tool is to go like five deep in terms of, of asking why. Is there anything else that comes to mind that can help people maybe who've realized, okay, like I am an inquisitive person, but at the same time, I find myself in scenarios when I'm with clients and I don't know what to ask. Is there any way that they can go and educate themselves in a way that they can ask these better questions? I can't think of what people might consider to be a formal tool because I am a huge advocate of, of being as natural as you can possibly be. Mm. I do, however, know of one way to help drive it, another way. Cool. And, and this is something that, um, for the record, it's not going to work when you're in the meeting with the client. Mm. This is something that in order to build you, uh, emphasis is on the word build. Nothing is built by osmosis. Hmm. everything that's built, you have to take a, you have to make a conscious and definitive effort to build something. Somebody can bring you the bricks. You won't have a house unless you get out there and get the mortar and start putting it together and you need a plan. So my mindset is it's that's at the root of it. So here's the methodology. Again, I mentioned you can't do it when you're in the meeting. This you have to do after other meetings. Look at prior engagements with clients, with stakeholders, with team members, even on a personal, even things that are happening in your personal life. So this is a retrospective uh, exercise where you back and look at the interpersonal dynamics that took place during some, some type interaction and you, you go back and we're going to borrow from the agile world. So for a lot of people, this may sound familiar. It is the same thing that happens with an agile retrospective. You do it to yourself. What did I do well? What could I have done better? What would I like to do going forward? And, and then specifically with regard to what we're talking about, I do that all the time to myself to see what, what I could do to, what could to make myself a better product. Each one of us is a UX product. What can I do to make myself a better product? So I go through that. But when it comes to when I'm going through that, I just naturally say, well, I wish I wish I have had asked them about this. So in, in building that more inquisitive nature, you can focus on that. I would encourage you to focus on other things as well, but focus on that. What questions could I have asked? Listen to what the person said. There's a ton of wisdom to be gained by by engaging retrospective exercises because retrospect, we are our vision, retrospective vision is always 2020, pretty much. So go look at it, see what you could have done to be better, see what you could recommend it, see what exercise you might have been able to expose people to to help them be better, to help the group dynamics be better. But Ask yourself, what could I have presented? What kind of query could I have presented in this scenario that would have made it a better user experience for my clients and my stakeholders? So we're, we're talking about applying an aspect of UX to our engagement. A lot of UX professionals don't even consider that. It actually reminds me of a, 
a quote from a book that I love called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persick. And he says, <laughs> you want to know how to paint a perfect painting? It's easy. Make yourself perfect and then just paint naturally. So it's not just a thing on working on being better questioning, actually work on yourself and that'll lead into it. Okay. Yep. So the next yep. thing is foreseeing future negative events. This is an incredibly important part of being a good UX designer because you're not just looking at yes. a happy path, how you want a user to experience a product. You're looking at all of the possible mistakes that might come up along the way. How would you go about cultivating the skill within yourself to learn how to sort of look ahead and predict the possible outcomes? Wow, this one, this is really interesting because partially is dependent upon the same thing I just mentioned, the retrospective. That's a really powerful tool that a lot of people, it's free. So put it in your toolbox, retrospection, yeah. it's, it's huge. Yeah. Um, but there are two parts of UX, and, and I know you've seen my, my illustration on, on the landscape of UX pillars, all the different splatterings of methodologies and different things across the, across that illustration. And there's two on there and people can't usually read it. And so they're, they're going to miss this, but there's two on there that are key. One is risk mitigation. The other one is error mitigation. Both of them require, require foresight. There's an old proverb that says that a prudent man foresees the evil and prepares himself. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. So foresight is this thing. Uh, it has to be, we do to know, because some people will hear me say this and they'll go, well, I'm not good at seeing things. So I'm going to say this, please don't beat yourself up. You will never mature. You will never grow. You will never advance. If you expect yourself, unlike many people in the UX world that I have encountered today, they want this microwavable development, this microwavable growth. They want, they want to put themselves in the microwave of UX and turn into this top-notch UX person in a matter of, of, of three minutes. And it simply doesn't happen that way. Everybody has to mature. So, so this first part I want to mention is that, well, besides the retrospective, is that you're going to mature over time and you're going to get better. You, there's no way. If somebody's hearing this for the first time, you are not going to go into a meeting next week and foresee everything that could possibly happen and then begin to prepare for that. You don't have the skill. You don't have the experience. I didn't when I was at an early person stage, when I was a junior UXer, I couldn't do it. Uh, it I'm able to, to respond to to your questions, Jonathan, because of the things I've experienced over the years. And it affords me the ability through retrospect and because of things that we practice regularly and we see what works, we see what doesn't work. So that, that, that longevity, that engagement, that, that going from milestone to milestone in my own UX career enables me to respond the way that I respond. And directly to this particular question, when I'm on a project, it enables me to see the, the bump in the road, to see the pitfall, to see the potential struggle. And, and that's one of the things that UX practitioners bring to the table that people don't understand. The people who think that we just come to make things look pretty and don't realize that we're basically inside the user's head, that's where we live. Mm -hmm. There's a, I'm, a, I'm a big, you're making book references, I'm going to make a movie reference. 
here. There. Uh, there's a movie, a movie called Equilibrium. I'm a huge movie person. I grew up on movies and I'm still a big movie guy. I'm the head of a movie group, actually. We can't go <laughs> right now because of the pandemic, but yeah, I schedule movies. We're notorious for, for reserving entire auditoriums and going to see movies. But one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called Equilibrium. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Jonathan, but uh, movie starred Christian, yeah, Christian Bale, uh, Tay Diggs, and uh, I can't remember some of the other actors. There's a few recognizable people in this movie, but this movie is a it's a mix of classic sci-fi and martial arts. They they so the guys are the they believe that emotions are the the root cause of the ills of society so they come up with a with a prescription medication that people take that suppresses emotions and because they feel that by suppressing emotions you'll suppress crime and everything else that goes along with it so christian bale is part of these emotion pools are called the tetragrammaton and they but here's i said all that i have to set the stage or it probably won't make sense uh frequently a movie they can recognize when somebody's using their emotions and they make a statement that i constantly use when i'm talking about ux and they said they, they the the tetragrammaton are frequently noted as saying it's my job to know what you're thinking hmm. and when i heard when i saw the movie and i i just i forgot i was watching the movie and i immediately went into ux mode and i think that's what we do that's who we are and if people don't understand that that's who we, who we are and what we do, and they just think that you're going to make things pretty, then you're going to bump heads. So please be aware and know that foreseeing a pitfall, understanding that if we go this direction, heuristically speaking, I'm noted for saying that, people expect X, Y, and Z, but we're giving them LMNOP that's going to, we need to understand that that's going to, to uh, present a problem with the user experience for what we're working on here for the, for this resource. It's our job to know that but we won't get good at it immediately. So I encourage everybody, if you're not already at that level where you, maybe you started to see and recognize things a little bit, that's good, but it's going to be a while before you become like, Boom, 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 boom. You always recognize it. And then even when you do recognize a lot, there are still new and different scenarios that come up. So you still have to be patient with yourself. You still have to give yourself an opportunity to, to see things and don't expect perfection out of yourself, really at any given time. Never expect perfection from the stereotypical perfection perspective. But actually, and I, I study Greek, terminology a lot and, and I found that the word uh, the word translated perfect uh, in the Greek that we translate perfect that we use in in in, in the King's English actually refer, it doesn't refer to being error free it's funny how society sees perfect as being error free that's stereotypical definition being perfect is actually about aiming to do your absolute best not necessarily having been your best it's am I trying to hit the bullseye don't have to hit the bullseye to be perfect. You have to be, be, be focused to be perfect. And so if we're focused, then 
you got to know that your results are going to be pretty good if you're the focused. If you're not focused, then you're not perfect. And then your results are going to be about the same. So don't try to be error free. Just be focused. Allow yourself the opportunity to grow. And you'll continue to be able to, to, to execute the, the risk mitigation and the error mitigation that goes along with being a notch user experience professional. So it's not my job to know what you're thinking. And this will only come with experience <laughs> and exposure yes. to the work over time. That's really practical. Uh, and then approaching your yes. work with a sense of excellence. I'm like, as you're talking, I'm just thinking of quotes from Zen and Auto Motorcycle Maintenance, man. So I'm going to drop another one. <laughs> um, this is from, <laughs> it says here, what moves the Greek warrior to deeds of heroism? Kito comments. It's not a sense of duty as we understand it. Duty towards others. It is rather duty towards himself. He strives after that which we translate virtue, but in Greek, ariate, excellence. Yes, I'm going to move yes. into the last question, which is dealing with information overload. So oftentimes when I'm working on a project, especially when there's tons of information, tons of requirements coming in, I'll feel overwhelmed. And when you feel overwhelmed, it's easy to feel unfocused. So what do you do when you're at the beginning of a project and you start to feel overwhelmed and you start to feel that niggling, unfocused feeling coming in? How do you rein that in? And how do you deal with this massive amount of information in front of you? When things like that happen, it's, it means that it's time to reset. Uh, we talk about rebooting our computers when memory isn't running right, but we don't reboot ourselves. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Anytime that you feel you're not, you're not on functioning on all cylinders, go for a walk. Uh, I, I, one of the things I loved about working in creative agency spaces was that a lot of people are exactly that. And if we're not functioning optimally from a mental perspective, that's what's going to happen to the work. Well, that's why when you, you go to and a lot of companies have started, have started copying this lately. That's what the Googles, the world, a lot of other companies have been doing this and, and they got it from the creative agencies you'll see ping pong tables, foosball tables. Uh, you'll see a walk track, the building where I work now. We can go outside and we can walk. We have a game room where I work now. Get away from your desk. If you're having a moment, you need to reboot. I mean, you ever thought about the word recreation? I'm doing a little bit of, uh, of wordplay again here. But the there. word recreation, yeah, look at it. Look at what the word really says. You're recreating. <laughs> we don't think about that. Hmm. And, and the word is right in front of us. So you need to recreate. Get up from your desk because you're not optimal. Go into the game room and play a little Space Invaders. Play a little, play a little uh, pinball. Stare and, and, and fire up the, uh, the, uh, the Sony PlayStation and, and get a little uh, uh, whatever the games are, because I'm not a big gamer, but uh, Mortal Kombat or whatever it is. We need to engage in something that sort of detaches us from reality, allows us to relax, and which is, in a sense, that's what's happening when people take naps and they call them power naps. You're actually resetting yourself. When we sleep, the body is, is, is restructuring itself. It's rebuilding itself. It's refreshing itself. When we get away from our desk, and we go for a walk or you go over in a corner and just put your head down for a few minutes, or maybe you just run down to a cafeteria or to, to a local coffee house and 
and, and you get some coffee and you just sit there and talk to another coworker about life, not necessarily about the work. And every time we do this, what happens when we get back to our desk? We're sharp as a tack and we're ready to face the world. So information overload, it's a thing, but we just have to have strategies to manage that, that information, and then be ready to take it on in digestible chunks and manageable chunks, and then, and then pace ourselves so that we can achieve the excellence that we need, is everything that's coming across our plate. If it's coming across our plate, we deal with it, but don't act like you're invincible because you're not, none of us are. And we all reach a point where we need to reboot. So just get better at recognizing when you've reached a reboot, a reboot state and go from there and, and manage yourself accordingly. Everybody's going to thank you for it. And, and, and your body's going to thank you for it because our brain is not limitless either. So when we learn how to reboot, come up with way, your way to reboot, vary for your coworkers, but find out what works for you from a reboot perspective and do it. It's absolutely fantastic, well-rounded, holistic advice. Thank you so much. Uh, are we going to yes. actually wrap it up now? Um, Darren, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time uh, to educate and share your knowledge. So just as in closing, I'd like to tell everyone about the World of UX podcast. So I mentioned it at the beginning. And yes. guys, if you are looking for a uh, succinct, well-packaged uh, just really well-rounded podcast. I highly recommend the world of UX podcast by Darren hood. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever. So go and check it out. Uh, and Darren, if people want to get in touch with you and ask you questions and that kind of thing, or read about some of the work that you've done. What is the best way to do that? <laughs> well, we have something coming up with that podcast and I'll mention it here if that's okay. Um, well, most people get in touch with me through LinkedIn. Um, I, I get a ton of, of messages on, on LinkedIn and I have to set aside part of my day to address them. Um, sometimes people ask me if, 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 um, if I can be their mentor and it, I get so many requests that it's practically impossible to do it. So there's a couple of things that are coming up and, and this will tie into the, the LinkedIn piece feel free to reach out to me. I'll always get back to you when I can. Of course, I'm not going to do it uh, uh, during a work day. Uh, if, I, if I'm having a break, if I am, re if I am rebooting, uh, because I'm extremely intense and I, the more intense you are, the more you might need to reboot. I'm an extremely intense person, as you may have guessed. Um, when I'm doing that, sometimes my reboot is to engage with somebody about it. So I might respond to you that way. Uh, more than likely, though, you hear from me after hours uh, and I'm in the Eastern time. Um, also we are on the verge of, well, not on the verge of, we actually have launched a uncensored YouTube channel where my talk, the talk I did for UX Joburg is out there now. And I've been, I'm in the process of taking old talks, uh, that where you have the deck is available on SlideShare, but you don't have the context a lot of times. I'm actually going to be recording those talks fresh. Those will be there. You'll be able to engage, post notes, post questions there on UX Uncensored. Uh, and backing up again, because I forgot to mention something about LinkedIn. If you have a topic that you'd like me to speak on, let me know. And, and uh, as Jonathan mentioned, I, I give of myself. I love doing it. I feel an obligation 
because the discipline has been good to me. I've had a lot of bumps. I've had a lot of weird stuff happen, but all in all, the discipline of UX has been good to me. There's a lot of people that are just getting started, a lot of people that are juniors, and and I still feel a responsibility to these people to help them to achieve the same path that I have. So to be grow, then I'm here to support that. And I do in everything within my power to support, whether it's LinkedIn context, whether it's what we're going to be doing through UX Uncensored, or whether it's addressing a topic that somebody presents on on the world of UX podcast. So, so these are the ways to get through to me. And, um, and, and the, the last thing I want to mention is that we are in the process of starting a, a live broadcast called Talk and Shop, where we're going to be just having random people on the, all live talking about various aspects of UX. And so uh, there's more news to come about about talk and shop later, but we'll be addressing topics that people have that they want us to to uh, elaborate on in the UX world. Because as I said on the podcast that just came out this week, UX is still a baby and it needs its diapers changed sometimes. And in our lives, we have to do that in order to optimize. So all of these resources together, I feel that they allow us to do just that and give us an opportunity to thrive in doing what we love doing. And one last question. You spoke to us about yes. movies. Uh, what movie would you recommend? <laughs> oh my goodness. You got to give me I a know, topic. It's tough. It's <laughs> tough. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, man. So I've got to do something obscure. Okay. If it's, uh, and I'll, I'll, how about I do two or three? There's a, an old classic. I was in the Detroit Free Press years ago giving this recommendation. And so I'm going to give the same recommendation to you guys. You already heard me talk about equilibrium. If you like sci-fi and you like martial arts, you'll love the mishmash that that puts together. Um, Here's one. Dolores Claiborne. If you love thrillers, Dolores Claiborne is a fantastic thriller. Some people might consider it to be slow at times, but this, this under the radar movie it's just absolutely fantastic. And I, I won't even tell you what it's about. You can go to imdb.com and look up the synopsis of the movie, but it is absolutely it phenomenal. <laughs> um, the other one is the one that I was, I was mentioning and I sort of diverted myself there. The one that I was in the Detroit Free Press recommending was a movie called House of Games. If it, It's another thriller. In case you're wondering, that's my favorite kind of movie is a thriller. <laughs> so I can sit there. Here I am in a movie trying to figure out who did it. You know, I'm supposed to be relaxing. I'm solving puzzles while I'm watching the movies. So, uh, so House of Games is a thriller. Uh, David Mamet is is a world-renowned um, uh, screenwriter. And he, it, this is a phenomenal movie. And it's about a woman who catches some con men. And then, here's the UX and me coming out again. She's a, she's a, she's a, uh, a, sci- a scientist. And when the con men, when their con fails, she gets them to agree to do what we would consider to be an ethnographic study. So again, I haven't left the work. I'm still watching, watching these movies, looking at the work. So it's about a, a woman who does ethnographic study on con men. It's, it's a phenomenal film. Again, it's Sounds slow. Amazing. If you're looking for car chases and for things to blow up, you're going to be grossly disappointed. 
but those those two I'll leave it at those two for now that's i highly that's recommend fantastic i think i just want to end on this note ux is not something that you can just jump into to take advantage of the pay scale or the opportunities you have to do this if you love your job and yes. this is something you want to commit your life to and i think it's cool when you ask someone about movies that they love and they start telling you about their work and about how that comes into it. I think that's really a big takeaway here. Like UX is not something you can conjure up. This is the discipline to throw your life into and yes. to, if you, to be passionate about it. Thank you so much for listening. If you learned something from this episode and would like to hear more episodes in the future, please subscribe and consider leaving a comment so that other people can find this content. If you have any questions and would like me to answer them on an upcoming episode, go into the show notes where you can find a link to my Twitter page where you can ask me any questions that you have or even leave a voice note using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep the user right where they should be first.